The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This kind of Caesarism... I hope for this not necessarily a dictator but a but a man on a horseback to fix all these problems just was a, a pretty clear parallel to Trumpism and, and and the trends we're seeing on the American right. I'm Quinta Jurassic and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January thirty first, two thousand twenty two. What's the best historical analogue for the American political situation today? Often, pundits will compare the current age of rising polarization and increasing political violence to the era preceding the Civil War. If they're alarmed and looking for a European analogy, sometimes they'll point to Weimar Germany. But another point of comparison from pre-war Europe might be more apt. The French Third Republic, from the late 19th century leading up to World War II. Today on the podcast... Lawfare Managing Editor Jacob Schultz and I spoke with John Gans, who writes the Substack newsletter Unpopular Front, and is working on a book about American politics in the 1990s. He's written in depth about the political crises roiling the Third Republic, from the Dreyfus Affair to February 6, 1934. A violent riot outside the French National Assembly, which has striking echoes in January 6th. So why is France a more apt comparison than Germany or Italy? What can studying the Third Republic and February 6th tell us about January 6th and the rise of an American far right? And what might we learn from the striking differences between how French civil society responded to February 6th, as opposed to the more muted American response to a similar riot almost 90 years later? It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 31st. What the French Third Republic can teach us about January 6th. John, you've written that a uh, instructive parallel for the current political moment in the U.S. Uh, that maybe tends to get less attention than it should is the French Third Republic. Can you give us a sense of what the Third Republic was, both in terms of dates and just sort of basic political trends and and maybe a high level sense of why it's such a useful analog? Sure. Well, the Third Republic lasted from... 1870 until 1940. It was constituted uh, after France's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War, which brought down the Second Empire. That's that's the rule of uh, of uh, Napoleon III. 
it was, you know, like the United States, a democratic republic and uh, was a a multi-party system. It it became a formally multi-party system and had all the kinds of things you would expect from from a large democracy, you know, vibrant and rowdy public sphere, uh, lots of different social and cultural interests being fought out in public. And it also had some, you know, very serious structural issues and crises that made it a you know problematic and some would say weak system i thought you know a lot of people talk about you know weimar and italy as kind of analogies to the united states and you know you know they had fascist movements and that overthrew their democracies but i thought you know france had these kinds of far-right movements from actually before the rise of fascism. And they were kind of had to contend with a, and, and try to co-opt like a larger democratic culture and democratic society. So I thought, you know, France being an old democracy, kind of like the United States with a really old tradition of republicanism was, you know, in some ways a more accurate parallel. And fascism did not, overthrow i mean it created serious crises for the third republic but it didn't overthrow it the the third republic fell because of the defeat in the second world war so you know i i I thought it was just a could offer a more interesting set of parallels to the united states than the more classical stories about european fascism coming from italy or germany and, and part of that, and you mentioned it a bit in your answer, is the the role both in sort of the contemporary U.S. political moment and also in the Third Republic of a radical anti-democratic right taking taking a bigger presence into electoral politics. Could you talk a bit about what the composition of that you know component of the right was at different points in the Third Republic? Sure. Well, unlike the United States, the Third Republic has a kind of indigenous anti-democratic tradition of monarchism, um, which has always, you know, after the French Revolution in 1789, there's always been, and this is sort of faded in modern times, but always some contingent that that hoped for a restoration and accomplished restoration a couple times of, you know, some kind of monarchical system, whether it was a constitutional monarchy or an absolute monarchy. Then, you know, there was the tradition of monopartism, which was not monarchical, wanting to restore the king, but hoping for some kind of military dictatorship centralizing the country. So there's those two kind of anti-democratic traditions. Their relationship to republicanism is complicated because sometimes monarchical parties would, would do very well. And Bonapartism was a product of the French Revolution. So its attitude towards, you know, the ideals of the French Revolution, liberté, fraternité, égalité, were were complex. So there was a, a kind of new birth after sort of the fading of Bonapartism and monarchism, which were old ideologies or old systems. There was a, a birth of a kind of new nationalism, which was focused on some special essence of the French people and country that was hostile to external enemies like Germany, you know, the hereditary enemy, and also internal corruption uh, or the perception of internal corruption 
by ethnic minorities, by leftists. And in the late 19th century, this new nationalism kind of created, it, it kind of melded onto and, and the older traditions, monarchism, republicanism, and Bonapartism, but it, it added new things to the, to the equation, which was anti-Semitism, you know, as it not, I mean, look, in Europe, especially in Catholic Europe, there's usually some tradition of anti-Jewish prejudice, but anti-Semitism is a political ideology that organized parties that was, you know, part of a program that was envisioned a whole politics around it was, was really something that emerged in the late 19th century. That, so this was, this was a new part of the French anti-democratic right, a relatively new part of the French anti-democratic right, you know, that sort of offered an explanation of the crises that the country was facing in terms of modernization, industrialization, which was putting a lot of pressure and very disruptive for, you know, the lives of many people. And this was a country that was becoming industrialized experiencing modern capitalism and it's kind of the old order of peasants and artisans was giving way to something modern there was urbanization there was consolidation of industry and you know these are extremely disruptive and traumatic changes in the country and you know the right part of the far right or the nationalist far right story not not all there were but but a but a part of it was a kind of populist anti-semitism so yeah, there was a there was a transformation in the late nineteenth century where France's nationalist right starts to look less like something you would you would associate with the nineteenth century and more like not exactly in every respect like a fascist movement, but there were things that you could recognize as being similar. There's one other thing. There was a after the Franco Prussian War, there was a, a this is an important thing to note. There was a wounded nationalism to do with the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, and there was a desire for revenge, and so there was a, a national consciousness of of being wronged and a feeling that you know some solution had to be uh, a radical solution had to be offered for the reconquest of Alsace-Lorraine. So this general Boulanger, you know, offered himself as this sort of providential solution to this problem who would lead reunite the country and lead it against germany really what's strange and this is where where things start to look a little bit fascist you'd have to say is that he he attracted interest from all sections from the reactionary right and then from even sections of the left who were becoming disillusioned with the parliamentary regime and were looking for some kind of new energetic form of government and had never been quite sold on, you know, living in a democratic republic, partly because of negative experiences to do with the Paris Commune, which is a whole nother story. But there was a kind of new synthesis of politics around these sort of hoping for a strongman figure that would lead a national a national regeneration and a, and a new kind of politics. So there's a searching around for a new kind of politics. Describing it as a searching for a new kind of politics is useful. And I think to me speaks to why this comparison between the U S now and the third Republic in the area you're writing about is so telling. I mean, so you, you sketched in, in some detail what the kind of the French right 
looked like in this period and how it was leaning toward something perhaps approaching fascism, but certainly something that was sort of a authoritarian mass movement with characteristics that looking back, we find kind of disturbing. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how that compares to the extreme right that we're seeing in the U.S. today and and why it's a useful comparison, specifically focusing on the political right? Hmm. Well, I think it's a useful comparison in a number of different ways. So I think that basically what you have in France is for a very long time, there's a desire among many different movements that that don't really entirely coalesce who are, who are kind of searching around for some kind of providential authoritarian solution to the frustrations and corruption that they associate with the Republic. And they wax and wane in strength, depending on the international situation, depending on the internal politics. But it's a long-lasting tradition. And they sort of put their hopes on different figures at different times. There are also these massive public controversies, which you might call culture wars, like, you know, there's there's the Dreyfus affair, where, you know, it was... a false accusation against the Jewish army officer that he committed treason. It turned out to be basically he, he didn't do it. And then there was a cover up to try to kind of frame him because it became a question of the, of the honor of the army. And this kind of, it divided the society in two where there was a division between these two types of, 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 of nationalism or, or one could say two types of a nationalism and a patriotism. The nationalist side of this said, you know, he's an alien. He's not really French. And the honor of French history, tradition, institutions is a question here and is being revised or, or corrupted by the other side. The other side said, no, the fundamental thing here is France is the country of, of universal human rights. France is the country of the French Revolution. You know, we don't falsely imprison people this is this is and uh, frame people so this is an outrage against justice and i think what's similar here is that there's two different conceptions of nationalism kind of like we have in the united states where you have uh, an open civic nationalism that kind of views the uh, constitutional rights and and pluralism and um civic participation as being you know the the, the main thing about makes you american and then another kind of nationalism, which either racially or ideologically kind of imagines something more substantial, where it's, it's not just like, oh, if you follow the, the, the creed, the American creed, you're American, but they, they imagine, you know, either rooted in, in something racial or in some imaginary conception of America's past. And I saw a real parallel between those two different conceptions of nationalism and, and one being the one that's, you know, definitely held by the far right and sections of the American right. And one that's, you know, held by liberals, progressives, some, some, some leftists. So I think that the fixation on national decline and decadence is another real serious parallel between the far right of the third Republic and the far right of the United States today. The sense that there is some, strength or national substance that's being sapped usually by some kind of internal 
enemy, usually that's could be some kind of process or abstraction, but usually kind of personified into a, you know, usually kind of foreign or, or uh, a leftist or something like that, or leftists or foreigners are usually sometimes, hopefully you could even get those all in one person as the case was. So yeah, there is a, there's a, there's a fixation on national decline and there's a hope for a politics that will bust through the, you know, decadent and immobile politics of the democracy and replace it with something, you know, kind of dynamic and robust and, and bold and undo this system, uh, this, this, this corruption. And I just thought, you know, this, this kind of Caesarism, you, you could call it hope for this, not necessarily a dictator, but a, but a man on a horseback to fix all these problems just, you know, was was a, a pretty clear parallel to Trumpism and, and and the trends we're seeing on the American right. So at the beginning of your answer there, you mentioned the, the Dreyfus affair. And, and one thing that I've noticed in your writing is one aspect of the Dreyfus affair that you talk about as as being sort of the, the birth of a new type of politics that took us all the way to what ended up happening on February 6th, which we'll talk about a bit later, is this real acceleration of conspiratorial thinking and of of sort of conspiratorial thinking as a component of domestic politics. Could you talk a bit more about that specifically, right? I think for some people that will really have shades of what's going on today with, you know, corruption narratives, conspiratorial narratives and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, basically the Dreyfus affair, when it kind of, became clear that Dreyfus was innocent and he had been kind of framed up, not, not from the beginning, but just in order to cover up the, the incompetence of the, of the intelligence bureau of the French general staff. Basically, you know, the right wing press jumped into the fray with, with, you know, these, these rather insane conspiratorial versions of things, which was basically, there was a, you know, a Jewish syndicate that was, in line with the left that was secretly pulling the strings. They came up with also just these, you know, you know, wild post-truth versions of events. So here's, here's one story. Like one, a member of the, of the conspiracy admitted to forging the evidence against Dreyfus and committed suicide. And, you know, you would think this is the end, right? Uh, he admitted it in shame. He 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 committed suicide. But the 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 right wing press, the right wing ideologues, and their kind of perverse brilliance turned him into a martyr and said this person, the he actually made a patriotic forgery. His heart was in the right place because he was trying to do the right thing and protect the honor of France. And his suicide is actually his martyrdom at the hands of this Jewish conspiracy. And so in the teeth of, you know, what should have been this reversal politically for up for them, they they invented this narrative that kind of uh, uh, rescued their their political uh, prospects. And it was fanciful and it sounds insane. But um, these sorts of theories uh, became a part of the politics and were very exciting to you know the the section of the public that was was involved in this now it has to be said that there that these conspiratorial mindset was not only limited to the far right the the Dreyfus affair saw similar 
types of theories being generated on the left or the center left, roughly French liberals and leftists about the Jesuits being behind the whole affair and orchestrating some kind of takeover. Now there was sort of a conspiracy. Well, there was, there was a conspiracy against, you know, Dreyfus and, and to cover up the, the, the truth of the, of the case. And there was an appetite among the far right or not among, you know, there was a hostility. This is different. What makes it very different than the United States is that there were these powerful institutions in the country that were really not, had not made their peace with living in a democratic Republic. And there were hopes on the far right, the anti-Dreyfus are far right, that they, that a general could be talked in, you know, out of the dissatisfaction with this affair and out of the, the, the crisis and the controversy was creating could be talked into to some kind of coup against the Republic for whatever reason, it's complicated. The army didn't go for it. So these, these, the coup attempt that the anti-Dreyfusards tried was, was farcical and it failed, but it was also just that the, the issue was contested in public. There were, there was violent, there was actual violence. There were riots, anti-Dreyfusard mobs uh, attacked famous writers like, Emil Zola, who, who took up the Dreyfus Art cause. I mean, it was a very intense, you know, one French historian called it a cold civil war. It was a controversy in which, you know, a limited thing seemed to be in question, but actually like the nature of the whole society was being fought out. And it was settled in a certain way, but then the forces, the forces that were revealed during this never fully went away. The anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, authoritarian movements, journalists, tradition basically of intellectuals faded in importance from time to time, but kind of remained a part of the French political scene. So yeah, the, there was a there was a conspiratorial tradition that that really took hold during that and 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 just became a kind of permanent part of political discourse. And so the the Dreyfus affair leads, albeit indirectly, to this event that you've written is is actually a really striking parallel to the January 6th riot coup, insurrection, whatever you want to call it. And that's what happens on February 6, 1934. So I, I do want to dive into how we get from Dreyfus to February 6th. But before we do that, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, like what happened on February 6th? So basically, you know, France was, it was in the teeth of, of the depression, which was not as bad as it was for other European countries in the United States. There was a massive scandal, you know, it, there, that was a little bit like Jeffrey Epstein. There was a, there was a kind of a, a swindler and crook, who had all these connections with the elite of of the Third Republic and you know the establishment parties, the establishment liberal left liberal party, but also had a lot of ties to people on the right and and, and the far right. And it kind of had turned out that his prosecution had been put aside, you know, for pretty manifestly corrupt uh, reasons. He he was Jewish, which which created a you know a lot of fuel to the anti-Semitic you know, press. And finally, the prosecutors decided to go after him. The French cops cornered him. He was killed. And then this became a whole conspiracy that the cops killed him intentionally to 
cover to make a cover up. So this 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 was seized upon as a this as a you know a, an event that showed the corruption of of the whole regime, and a police captain or or the the prefect of the Paris police, in the process of the kind of government trying to you know deal with the aftermath of the crisis was dismissed, and he was a real far righty who was a famous skullcracker loved to set the cops on communist and socialist workers very popular at the far right so basically they this was in the conspiratorial mind of the far right the the this kind of center-left government that was in power was planning or being invested with power was planning a soviet a russian uh communist coup d'etat because there were you know some socialists in, in government against you know and and this needed to be prevented so there's a demonstration by veterans by many of these kind of fascist and far-right leagues which hadn't become one party but were many little or you know medium-sized groups centering on different figures and they surround they they attempted to surround the the parliament and enter it they didn't it was extremely violent clashes between police many people lost their lives i think it was like 14 people were killed the parliament was in session the new prime minister from the radical center-left radical party, Deladier, survived votes of no confidence by the right. You know, the, these right-wing mobs outside were ostensibly anti-parliamentary, but they actually had quite close connections with, you know, some members of of parliament and, and ran, often their leaders ran for parliament and, and won and took seats. Deladier survived the, the, the crisis that night, but then resigned. And then there was this kind of a new compromise government that, you know, frankly, kind of gave in to some of the 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 demands of the rioters. And they, you know, they, they got rid of the center left government, a kind of more center right leaning government was constituted. And that that kind of tamped down the immediate crisis. But then the far right sort of saw their power and some of the far right groups grew a great deal. But the other thing it did was it. It created so after the First World War, and the and the, the the revolution in 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 Russia, the the Socialist Party, the SFIO, the French section of the Socialist International, split into two: a Communist Party and a Socialist Party with different political strategies, beliefs. And what happened is, in the fate, you know, one part of this context here is that a fascist takeover had happened in Italy already. A fascist takeover had happened in. Germany already, and then the f- entire French left witnessed the events of February 6th, which was not a real coup. There was no organized, it was a violent riot, it crazed the crisis, but there wasn't an organizing conspiracy behind it. Um, but they interpreted it this way as a fascist coup, and this created a a new coalescence, a beginning of a new coalescence on the, on the French left. The old factional struggles were sort of dealt with and it, and it eventually led to the formation of of the popular front which was electorally successful and um that's an interesting story of its own but on the right the events of february 6 became a mythical event the dead of the of the event were martyred for them and pretty much every significant figure well not every significant figure but many many figures who later staffed the Vichy regime, you know, the collaborating regime with the Nazis had been young men or, or uh, on February 6th or, or look to February 6th as kind of the moment where this national revolution 
seemed to be coming true, even though it was a failure at the time and it actually led to the success of the left in the short term. It was a it was a symbolic moment, a very powerful symbolic moment for both the French left and French right. In the imagination of the French left, it was the appearance of, of fascism as it had happened in the other countries. And for the French right, it was the beginning of this um, national revolution to end the decadence of the republic, throw back the socialists and the communists and so on and so forth. But, you know, the similarity is eerie in a certain way because, you know, it's a kind of loose coalition of of far right groups kind of attacking the the legislature. So the, you know, it's difficult not to, you know, look for a parallel there. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's also not too hard to see your previous answer about Dreyfus, it's, it's not too hard to see how the one can sort of lead to the other, even if in a vague sense, right? When you inject these conspiratorial ideas about the political ruling class, that can lead to lead to a certain place. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of the figures were still alive, you know, so the, the head of the French Socialist Party, Leon Blum, in his youth had been a, a, an ardent Dreyfusard. And most of the, you know, the old names of the French right wing wing press and the and the some of the organizations dated back to the, the to the time of the Dreyfus affair. So it was almost like, and this is kind of continues up to the present day. Is like almost every single crisis after the Dreyfus affair is refighting the, the terms of the Dreyfus affair in, in certain ways. So some of the same figures are involved, some same grudges, and a lot of the same ideological themes. So you know. Leon Blum, who became prime minister a couple years after this, yeah, in his youth, he had been a Dreyfusard. He was Jewish, a socialist, and just to the anti-Dreyfusard left was the absolute most horrifying enemy they could have possibly met. I mean, he was a very, in a way, mild, some might say timid reformist socialist, but, you know, as a Jew and a socialist and a Dreyfusard to the, to the right, just like was the personification of evil. And just the the worst thing that they can imagine. In fact, there was a slogan, you know, better to have uh, Hitler than Bloom, you know, and that can kind of show you uh, where the, the attitude of the French uh, right was at right before the war. And so you've talked in your initial answer, right, there's some really striking parallels with January 6th. And before we even dive deeper into sort of the political backdrop of the parallels, I wonder if we can talk a bit more about literally the event itself, right? So Walk us through, it's pretty striking hearing you talk about a 
walk us through like the day of what feels similar with what happens on February 6th and what feels sort of different between the two, the two events, the one being February 6th in France and, and the other being January 6th in the U.S.? Well, you know, they both kind of unfolded in, in a chaotic way and the way that these mass things with crowds do. The crowds are roughly the same size, actually. The biggest difference is that no one, no single figure directed the, the February 6th group to try to take the parliament. This was sort of just, you know, what mood because of the, you know, the depth of the crisis that they perceived, what mood took the, there was no rally from which they came. They all kind of surrounded. And one of the groups sort of refrained, one of the groups that actually became politically successful, refrained from the worst violence probably because they saw that politically like they weren't going to be able to overthrow the government and it just wasn't worth it. The police successfully prevented the rioters from entering the parliament on February 6th through, you know, just open firing and also doing cavalry charges with sabers, you know, and this made the, the public response to the event all the more fraught because like there was a belief on the right, not even necessarily the far right, that the police response was was an overreaction and brutal and you know many of the people who were in the crowd had been were veterans of the first world war so you know their deaths or their injuries were you know something that the public was was extremely sensitive about but again both crowds contained a large number of veterans these organizations uh both contain people you know not mostly from the working classes, but from sort of middle class professions, uh, small business owners. And a lot of these people had relatively secure social backgrounds that had become more precarious and under the conditions of the depression. So there's a, a real social parallel between the composition of the crowds, both in terms of their background and the fact there were lots of veterans. The things going on in parliament were it wasn't just a symbolic like the the vote counting or uh, that was going on uh on January 6th it wasn't a symbolic procedure there was actual parliamentary business going on that they were trying to disrupt it which was and uh there were real votes that took place during in the teeth of the crisis there was there was these no confidence votes by the right wing deputies trying to overthrow the center left figure but yeah in both cases there was a uh, alliances between the crowds outside and the politicians and certain politicians inside who had connections with these groups. And the, the monarchist part of the French far right by this had sort of was not the leading section, but a lot of the appeals of the groups that were, you know, rioting uh, were put in the language of the French revolution of 1789, the Republic, and so on and so forth. Any insurrection that takes place in France that's an automatic tradition to call upon makes a lot of sense. You know, it's a hallowed tradition. And in a similar way, you know, you kind of see this these these throwbacks in um, the American far right and to 1776 and the Revolution and so on and so forth and our Republican tradition. So yeah, these are the parallels that I see. I mean, what is much different is the response of the left. I mean, the left in France was a mass movement, deeply integrated with the labor movement, and 
in the aftermath of February 6th, they organized a general strike, a one-day general strike in the country against fascism. And, you know, as I said, it, it sort of led to this uh, popular front of, of the different leftist groups coalescing. So there was a, there was a mass, resp- this was sort of a mass riot, insurrection, whatever you want to call it. And there was a mass response, uh, a, a mass demonstration response, which is not something you really saw in the United States after January 6th. It, we have politicians denounce it. There's obviously it's being worked out in the in the justice system through committees, but not really much of a, a demon, public demonstrations or protests or something like that. You know, and there's a lot of reasons why, but but that's that's one big difference I would say. So February 6th was more violent, less of an actual coup attempt. Actually, I would argue because there was no plan that there, there was no framework. I don't know how planned the actual incursion to the Capitol was, but it was part of a kind of framework of some political move that they were trying to do. This was really much less, much less organized, but that's not the way it was perceived on the left. They thought it was, you know, absolutely a a plot. So again, here's a case where the conspiracy thinking was both ways. There was a sort of, some historians call it, one historians of the, of this group, call it a dialectic of conspiracy thinking, which is that the right perceived everything that the left government did as part of a conspiracy. And then the left would make a similar judgment about the right. And then they would, and this would create a sense of like distrust, a rationing sense of distrust where they would just see each other's moves in the worst possible light. And then they would respond just as if, it was a conspiracy because they were viewing each other as kind of these malevolent foes. So their ideas about each other's actions became quite confirmed. So there are serious parallels, but, you know, there are differences. You know, they actually brought down a government, which we don't have a parliamentary system, so that's not really how things work. You know, they, they got the, the prime minister resigned and they had to form a new government. So it's, it's immediate political results were, were clearer but in both cases, and I don't know how strong, I mean, I would be interested in what you guys think. I don't know how strong the myth, I mean, there is a myth of January 6th, you know, for the right. And I don't know how powerful it is as a political force or or if it's actually a weakness for the right. But that's another commonality. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, and one of the interesting things that I think we've seen in the year after January 6th is how the 6th, at least on on the right initially, was not a subject around which to rally or a cause for martyrdom. And it's sort of gradually become that over the past year as people have sort of accreted around these narratives of Ashley Babbitt's martyrdom, you know, of of supporting the people who are at the Capitol after a few months of sort of trying to frantically figure out whether the narrative was that it was Antifa or it didn't happen or they were fooled. I do I do want to ask though what you make of the fact that there was such a strong pushback on the part of the French left. Because as you say, I do think one of the the interesting comparisons between February 6th and January 6th is that there are certain corners of American civil society, not on the far right, that have responded strongly to January 6th. I think I would say 
sort of centrists, both left and and right, um, and sort of people who might define themselves as as liberal Democrats are outraged about it in the same way that there was a lot of outrage from those same constituencies over the Mueller investigation, for example. But on the left, it, it seems to me, at least, to be a lot more muted. And perhaps because of that, there doesn't seem to be a really strong mass movement, mass rejection. It's mostly, you know, people responding to whatever the latest news story is about the January 6th committee or or so on. Why do you think that is? Well, a few reasons. First of all, we're talking about very different societies. That has to, you know, as, as fruitful as these analogies, I think, are, we should recognize the differences and the disanalogies, which I think are just as illuminating sometimes. France was an industrial country in the classic mode at this time with a mass working class who worked on factory floors, doing heavy industries, was organized into labor unions. These labor unions were integrated into left-wing politics and the left-wing parties in the face of you know, various crises or political needs that could call on these workers to strike or to make demonstrations. So there was a mass organized left, which the labor movement in the United States is moribund. The industrial and social basis uh, of the country has changed a great deal. I mean, you know, we had sit, uh, sit down strikes in the 30s and, you know, our, our, our society appeared, you know, more similar to this in the past. But so the society has, has changed a great deal. That's one part of it. And the and the role the left plays has played another part of it. Unfortunately, I think the, the Trump era began with the appearance of mass rejection of Trumpism through these these big demonstrations like the Women's March. And then, you know, this kind of tapered off. And, and I think in, in kind of unfortunate ways, I think, you know, in the United States, there are lots of different obstacles for keeping these kinds of mass movements going. The lack of organization structures provided by a left-wing party and labor movement is, is one of them. But I think, you know, to just to just to push back as a representative of the left here, you know, I think, unfortunately, the political initiatives shifted from we're going to have a mass movement against Trump to putting the faith in these kind of bureaucratic and procedural solutions. So putting a lot of faith in the Mueller investigation and kind of investing Mueller with a kind of cult of personality almost and putting a lot of faith in, you know, the organs of 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 the security state and the bureaucracy in the Russia investigation or now going after the, you know, the planners and and perpetrators of January 6th. So there there's I think there's a tendency among American liberals to favor elite solutions and to distrust or be frightened of mass mass movements and mass demonstrations. And, you know, some of these things, you know, when there's actual crimes committed, they, it calls for, you know, certain aspects of the state to get involved. So those two reasons, I think, is just the preference, uh, cu- the cultural political preference for um, investing these figures of authority of liberal authority rather than and those those people just say, well, let us do our work go through the procedure and we'll bring charges or we'll have a hearings or we'll do this and we'll do that. They don't call people out into the streets, you know, nor, nor should they, it would be weird to have a a federal bureaucrat calling for mass demonstrations. That's not the kind of thing you want to see. I I think the American left, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a debate on the American left about this. 
I mean, for, for the most part, you know, I would say people are concerned about the appearance, forceful appearance of the far right. I would say there is a distrust of the national security apparatus. There is a unfortunate feeling of impotence and unwillingness to want to defend democratic institutions because they feel they're completely dominated either by conservatives or liberals and, and leftists are always marginalized and pushed out of them. So they just don't feel included or part of the system, which was very different from the French case where, you know, the French left, even when it became socialist and communist, you know, the, the French, France is the country of the French revolution, you know, which had a left wing and social cast from its very beginning. And they could feel very proud and protective of the French Republic, which was always kind of had a left wing flavor in a certain way. So I would say that our tradition of republicanism is less integrated, like our left is less integrated in a certain ways with our democratic Republican tradition. That's part of it. And then just the predominant, I would say it's just the marginality of the American left as a political force where we're sort of, you know, well, we have Bernie, but, you know, he follows pretty much the, the line that other Democrats put down on these issues. He, he, he's not the person necessarily creating a different type of politics. I think most of his statements are right on the money. But, yeah, you know, he's not in a position exactly to call the masses out of the streets like, like Leon Bloom, who could, you know, and his communist counterparts who could get the workers to strike. Like there, there's just not that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I think it, let's say there was some rerun of of January six, and it was more successful, and the crisis got deeper, and it looked like the the forces of reaction, whatever, were on the verge of uh, of of successfully seizing power. I don't think we could count on a general strike or or any kind of labor action as being part of the 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 formula for fighting that, which I think is unfortunate because I think actually the left was by presenting itself as the defender of the Republic and opponents of fascism, they were able actually to present themselves as like the responsible parties and the ones that people wanted to invest with power because there was a genuine public revulsion to this kind of thing. So they kind of seized leadership through their, they, they decide we're going to lead we're going to lead the anti-fascist campaign, the socialists. And they became the primary party, the largest party in this coalition that included center-left liberals, you, you, you could say, and people to, to the right of the, of, the, of the socialist, the communist party. So they, the, immediately they were in a position and they decided to adopt a leadership role. They said, look, we are the ones to lead the you know, front against fascism. And it's just politics works in a different way. Our society works in a different way. The left has a different relationship to culture and politics. I think, unfortunately, I don't know what it would look like. My preference is that the left would view itself as having intellectually, at least, even though we don't have a mass movement behind us, the most cogent analysis, at least, of the events that took place and say, you know, this is why, you know, we should be in the leadership for the defense of American democracy. That's not a role the left is able or willing to perform at the moment. It would say there's a lot of immaturity. The liberal center are just more accustomed to governing and 
the mechanics of politics on that level. So the left in the U.S. unfortunately is marginal and its debates reflect its marginal position. All right, John. So to wrap up, I want to talk a bit about the years that followed the 1934 attack. So, right, you said earlier on that, you know, the Third Republic meets its end in 1940 for for reasons having less to do with anything happening internally and much to do with, you know, external, external pressure. So talk a bit about what came of the far right forces that were responsible for the February 6th attack in the years that followed. So in those, you know, six intervening years. And what do you feel like, if anything, that might tell us about like what could come in the US in the coming, you know, coming half decade or so? So I think we should qualify. This is a longstanding debate about who is responsible for the fall of France. You know, the, the, the right wing version is that the country was decadent and that's why the Nazis won. The left wing version is it was betrayed by these kind of right wing fifth columnists within, you know, that formed the Vichy regime. I would say there's more truth to the latter, obviously, but it, the, the story is more complicated. So what happened to the far, the French far right? When the Popular Front came to power, uh, this was their worst nightmare. You actually had communists in government. Uh, you had the socialists as the leading party. And a lot of people uh, who had been involved in the far right leagues who took part in on February 6th kind of formed these guerrilla or terrorist group to continue to plot uh, against the popular front. And they received actually funding from Mussolini. They tried a kind of another not well conceived coup attempt, which was exposed and, you know, a rather serious conspiracy was exposed. The public didn't particularly take it seriously. The, the government didn't energetically, the popular front government, for reasons that don't make a lot of sense, didn't energetically jail or prosecute the people involved. And they were actually never tried until after the war. There was, during the Popular Front era, the government banned these far-right leagues. So imagine the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, all these different groups getting legally banned. You know, something that's more difficult to do in the American context, obviously. But these groups went from being anti-parliamentary kind of paramilitary groups, some of them just became parties. So one large kind of anti-parliamentary group just formed a, a parliamentary party and did quite well on elections. And they kind of moderated their their views. And, you know, you could say, you know, from from a certain political standpoint, that's successful. They, they, they've reintegrated into the political process. They stopped being overtly uh, hostile. On the other hand, you say, well, we didn't really get rid of these people. They just turned towards parliamentary politics, you know, which is arguably successful, but doesn't really deal with the underlying problem in it from another point of view. But these movements did actually kind of fade right before they weren't at their strongest point right before the fall of France. The Popular Front efforts to repress them were arguably successful. The feelings of resentment and distrust and these anti-Semitic feelings didn't disappear. They were quite potent, but they didn't have the same political organization they had in the beginning of, of, of the 30s. But the Popular Front kind of ran into its own problems and was not defeated by the far right, but just kind of by this, the center right doing its thing. And when the fall of France happened, a lot of the people who 
ended up staffing Vichy, became enthusiastic collaborators, had been members of the leagues who are leadership of the leagues who had uh, appeared on on February 6th and had the same people who had, you know, tried to do this terrorist campaign during the popular front years, all became political figures and staffers and uh, of the Vichy regime. Some of them out of nationalism, you, you have to give them credit, became resistance. You know, the, their anti-German nationalism, their patriotism won out and they couldn't quite bring themselves to collaborate and they joined the resistance. There are some quite far right people who did not become collaborators and stayed uh, and became resistance. But, you know, the Vichy was a movement and a, and a government that contained many of the types of people who either were actually there on, on February 6th or found it to be an inspiring moment. But, you know, Vichy, the, the fall of France happened not because, I mean, you can say that this stabilization, this kind of corrosive attitude towards the democracy contributed to the fall. But, you know, it happened for many complicated reasons. It wasn't brought down like the other European countries by these internal movements. And, and you know, there, there's this famous thesis by French historians about the immunity of French democracy to fascism. And they say, well, first of all, these movements weren't that fa- really that fascist to begin with. Second of all, it's clear that the normal political process kind of won out, you know, normal politics won out over these you know, street parliamentary movements trying to enforce their will on the public. And there's a newer school of historians that say, actually, these movements did really deeply affect the politics of the year, and they need to be understood as seriously causing instability and damage to French democracy in that period. And they they have to be understood as, as part of the story of the collapse, not just something that was turned back successfully. So, you know, I think that's important to think about, you know, I don't think there's the political strength at this point, or I can't envision it, of some kind of coup-like thing happening and being successful. But there's a larger political context where these movements, although they might not achieve what they literally set out to do, have many different effects on the politics of the country. So I think it's just important to expand our imaginations of what the effects of these politics are beyond success and failure. Will it reshape the parties? Will it reshape the terms of politics? Will it cause crises that weaken the government's ability to respond? Will it make it complicated for the government to meet the needs of the crises we're going through now in terms of COVID, in terms of economic stress. And I think you have to say, you have to start to think about things in those terms. Is this going to be a part of the the equation, the formula of the way American politics works in the next 10 or 20 years? Um, these sorts of crises, these sorts of groups asserting themselves periodically. And that's what I think is interesting. I, I think, you know, we one shouldn't completely downplay the danger of such things. But I think it's just like, is this a sort of new era in American politics where this sort of thing is an important part of the uh, of the equation and i think you know if you're serious you sh- you should say yes you know even if you think you know probably such things are bound to be 
superficially look more symbolic than real. I think that is a appropriately nuanced yet ominous note to end on. So John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks guys. I, I really appreciated it and it was a lot of fun. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast and give us a review. And go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our audio engineer this week was Hamza Shadu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.